This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 96th episode of the program. Today is May 26th, and before we get started, I want to thank all of these individuals for deciding to sign up to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week we have Aaron Stolley, Alex Grant, Alfred L. Epting, Brett Rungren, Brian Gonzalez, Christopher Earhart, C. Dieffen, Cindy Adams, Darren Page, Dave Fried, Eric Flores, Eric Andrew Emanuelson, Fanny Isaacson, Fictional Abilities, Jeffrey Maddox, Jeff Sarwatori, Joe Perry, Judith K. DeHoff, Judith Mass, Kent Goldingay, Lorena LaForest, Manuel Logan, Margie, Mary Andre Amesquita, Matthew Raskob, Max Pargament, Melissa Wallace, Michael T. Seaman, Mo Baybordi, Nancy Whiteman, Nils Monahan, Paula Isella, Richard Samuel White, Sarah Jensen, Sidharth Jutha, Skip Dotty, Solvey, Stephen Gole, Steve Bargamo, Tom Interval, and Willow Dion. So thank you to every single one of those individuals for deciding to support the show. Um, a quick note before we get into the topics, I do have the air conditioner on because it is a beautiful sunny day in Portland, Oregon, and it is very hot. Um, and with all the lights surrounding me, um, I will quickly cook if I don't have any source of air <laughs> in the house. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't uh, come across as something that's too prevalent or bothersome in the audio. You might hear a slight buzzing, but just know that it's the AC um, and not the quality of the microphone degrading. So on today's episode, First, Donald Trump proposes cuts to basically everything, and I will talk about it. Tulsi Gabbard calls out Donald Trump for his hypocrisy. Bernie Sanders devises a plan to kill Trump care, and the FCC is refusing to back down from their attack on the internet, and Comcast is doing propaganda to help with that effort. So, of course, I'll talk about that. Also, Bill Maher berates Cornell West in a new rich splaining segment. And democracy was undermined in the states of Maine and Vermont. I'll tell you how and why. Also, a Republican was charged with assault for body slamming a reporter. Not joking. I'll also talk about a recent Tom Perez speech and how Democrats still don't know what issue to prioritize in 2018. And finally, I'll speak with congressional candidates Ben Frank and Stephen Jaffe. So all of these topics will be discussed on today's episode. Let's waste no time. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Whenever the FCC proposes new rules, they always hold an initial vote. And then after hearing from the public for a couple of months, they hold one last final vote. Now, after the FCC voted to kill net neutrality in a two-to-one vote, it's only been a week or so, but the public has already made their position overwhelmingly clear. They want the FCC to leave the internet alone. In fact, 2.6 million comments have been submitted to the FCC, the overwhelming majority of which are in support of net neutrality. So the question is, have they began to tweak their proposal at all? Have they edited the text to take into account the public's concerns about net neutrality if these new rules go through? Well, 
Not really. So The Verge explains, we were only able to spot a handful of changes in the main text of the proposal, and many of them seem to be the commission blowing its own horn. In a few locations, the commission added information related to a net neutrality court decision that came down on May 1st, after the publication of its first draft. That sounds logical on the surface, since the court upheld the Title II classification for internet providers, but the proposal only briefly brings that up. Instead, it pulls in bits of dissenting opinions from two different judges on the case. In the first instance, the commission includes an excerpt from a judge's dissent arguing that the Title II classification is illegal. In the second instance, the updated proposal includes a dissent from the same court saying that net neutrality rules could violate internet providers' First Amendment rights unless those internet providers are regional monopolies, which is generally the case. These excerpts are mostly meant to lend credence to Pai's argument that Title II isn't legally sound classification for internet providers. Though that issue isn't fully decided, it never hit the Supreme Court. It's been upheld so far. The biggest addition to this version of the proposal is a new paragraph pointing out a legal curiosity that internet service providers may be able to avoid Title II classification entirely by electing to provide a curated internet experience. Imagine a service that just let you access sports sites. The commission also takes a step back to ask how its jurisdiction will be affected by stripping away the Title II designation of internet providers, and this proposal very slightly expands provisions of the 2015 net neutrality order that the commission might keep. That is, should it decide to hang on to anything at all? Should that happen? The commission now proposes hanging on to definitions and provisions meant to avoid impacting ISPs' rights or obligations with respect to other laws or safety and security considerations. It's not much, but it shows a touch more consideration towards the possibility of keeping some rules on the books. And that's basically it. There are also several new pages in the proposal's appendix, but those are mostly statements and dissents that the commissioners issued during the vote last week. The FCC is supposed to take the public's comments into account when making proposals, but if it changed anything in response to the influx of pro-net neutrality comments received so far, it isn't at all evident here. Simply put, after 2.6 million people submitted comments in support of net neutrality, telling the FCC that they do not support these new rules and that they want to keep the internet classified as a utility under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934, the FCC is ignoring them. So we have unelected bureaucrats who can unilaterally destroy the internet, and even though they're required to take into account what we say, they're not doing that. They are supposed to hear out the public, and the public has already spoken. That's what the Administrative Procedure Act does. It prevents unelected bureaucrats from going against the public. And the FCC is, in fact, going against the public. And a senior official at the FCC even argued, quote, we cannot make a decision just based on the number or volume of comments in any particular direction. It has to be based on reasoned decision making and applying the facts. Oh, okay, is that so? So the law that requires bureaucratic agencies from taking input from the public doesn't actually have to listen to the public? So what's the point of the law then? This law has been in place for a very long time, the Administrative Procedure Act, to make sure that unelected bureaucrats do, do not undermine the will of the people. And the FCC is undermining the will of the people. 2.6 million people 
submitted complaints to the FCC, and there would be even more if the FCC wasn't using propaganda and Orwellian doublespeak, but most people who aren't concerned with net neutrality don't know what net neutrality even means or what it's about, but this would harm everyone. I mean, we need, there's more than 300 million people in the country. We need more than 300 million people in this country to submit complaints to the FCC because this is something that will harm every single person in the country, small businesses, news websites on the left and the right. Um, it will harm the consumers because this will allow internet service providers like Comcast and Verizon to charge exorbitant prices and come up with new tiered packages or curated packages. There's a new example from a user on Reddit that showed us what that would look like. There's a lot that could happen, but there's still unforeseen consequences that can't even be imagined yet. But we know that Comcast and Verizon and AT&T and Charter, they're all sitting in a back room thinking about the possibilities if this does go through. And net neutrality, if you explain it to people, and even if you poll them, it's overwhelmingly popular. So three people, technically two people, because it was a two-to-one vote, both Republicans, two people should not be allowed to destroy the internet as we know it, especially if the public has expressed overwhelming concern about these proposals. So these two idiotic Republicans are looking out for themselves because Ajit Pai, the FCC chairman, used to serve as an attorney for Verizon. And if you don't think he will be rewarded handsomely when he gets out with a really nice job and some bonuses, you are horribly mistaken. So he doesn't care about ruining the internet for everyone if it means looking out for himself and getting a job. Meanwhile, these ISPs will be laughing to the bank. So this cannot stand. If you have not submitted a complaint, you have to do this. If you even have just a modicum of concern about net neutrality, I would implore you to please submit a complaint. You will get a ticket number. You can do this at humanistreport.com. There's a link that goes directly to the FCC complaint website and allows you to file an official complaint. You need to call them, write them. We have to do everything that we possibly can right now because this is dangerous. This is really, I think, the most threatened the internet ever was because now we have a Republican who has gone rogue, who's not listening to the people who can unilaterally kill the internet at the behest of internet service providers, and that is a scary thought. Comcast is one of the companies that has the most to gain if the FCC does, in fact, reverse Title II net neutrality regulations. Now, they've spent more than $3.7 million on lobbying in 2017 alone. So if you don't think that they want this to go through, you are horribly mistaken, my friend. But in spite of what Comcast is in fact intending to do, they are assuring the public that we have nothing to be worried about because Comcast CEO Dave Watson released a statement saying, whether you are a Comcast customer or just an interested observer, you may be hearing a lot about net neutrality and openness of the internet. Let me be clear, Comcast supports strong, legally enforceable net neutrality protections that ensure a free and open internet for all of our customers. Our customers expect that we will protect their right to enjoy an open internet, and that is exactly what we do every day. At face value, that may sound lovely, but the problem is that they're lying. 
because on April 26th, they put out this article titled Comcast Supports Net Neutrality and Reversal of Title II Classification. Title II is not net neutrality, except that that is a contradiction because Title II is net neutrality because it guarantees that net neutrality is the law of the land. Those are things that are inextricably linked. You can't separate them. So Comcast is lying to the public, and they also state, while some try to conflate the two issues, Title II and net neutrality are not the same. Title II is a source of authority to impose enforceable net neutrality rules. Title II is not net neutrality. Getting rid of Title II does not mean that we are repealing net neutrality protections for American consumers. <laughs> Actually, that's exactly what it means. And if you are in favor of net neutrality, then why would you support the repeal of net neutrality requirements? So you support net neutrality, but you want those requirements to be repealed? I mean, wh what's the point of that? That makes no sense. It's inherently contradictory. So which is it? I mean, Comcast wants to have it both ways, but you can't have it both ways. Either you support net neutrality in Title II, or you are against the so-called open internet, as you like to put it. But Comcast is playing loose with the facts, or they're just actually lying. We can just call it what it is. They're lying. And, you know, if you don't believe that Comcast is lying, ask yourself this. What would the most hated company in America have to gain from reversing net neutrality rules? Well, a lot, actually. That CEO that lied to you would receive a huge bonus. He might be able to buy a fourth mansion. So there's a lot at stake for him, and this is a really important issue that's dear to his heart. Now, everyone's lying to us because the FCC also argues that we have nothing to worry about because internet service providers weren't throttling websites once the old net neutrality rules expired prior to the new ones being codified in 2015. But in fact, that's exactly what they did. They throttled Netflix. Comcast throttled one of their biggest competitors, Netflix, and demanded a ransom. In fact, in 2014, Comcast argued that it was only fair that Netflix pay for putting so much data on its networks, according to Quartz. In fact, you can see that the video quality of Netflix dropped off significantly once the old net neutrality rules expired. But once they paid their ransom to Comcast, all of a sudden, the quality of their video streaming improved significantly. So Comcast could make millions, as they did for from Netflix. So this is about pay to play. This is about throttling the speed of websites that don't pay this ransom. This is about censoring content. So Comcast could not like that Breitbart, for example, uh, is posting articles that aren't kind to Comcast. And then what they could do is throttle the bandwidth to Breitbart to punish them. So that way the traffic just comes to a crawl and nobody can access Breitbart because the website is just so slow. That's what Comcast can do. You are putting control of the internet in the hands of internet service providers that have a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value, and they will make millions of dollars. Actually, fuck that. They'll make billions of dollars if net neutrality is killed. This is what the internet could look like if net neutrality is rolled back. Comcast profits would go through the roof. And all of this propaganda that Comcast is disseminating about net neutrality and how they refer to it as the open internet, it sounds really similar to the way that the FCC's chairman, who came from the industry, talks about net neutrality. It almost seems as though these Republicans, both in Congress and on the FCC, are using the same talking points as the industry. Oh wait, it's because they are. They were caught taking talking points straight from the industry. So this is about corruption. This is about 
Republican lawmakers and bureaucrats doing the bidding of these internet service providers so that way they can make more money. Now, we haven't even gotten to the worst part yet because propaganda is just one component of this story. So, destroying your opponent is a completely different thing that Comcast is trying to do. So let me explain. So as you all know, 2.6 million people submitted comments to the FCC, and when the FCC and internet service providers saw how the public responded overwhelmingly against these new rules, they decided to do a little bit of astroturf and impersonate people and submit comments against net neutrality. So there were thousands of comments that were fake that were submitted in support of the new rules when those are bogus comments. People are having their names used to file complaints under the FCC. Now, some people named this phenomenon ComCastroTurf, appropriately so, because they're not real comments, and a website was set up so that way you can input your name and see if anybody impersonated you and filed a complaint in support of these new rules on your behalf. And Comcast is now trying to shut this website down. Interesting. So we see fake, bogus comments being submitted to the FCC to counter the millions that are being submitted in support of net neutrality, and Comcast wants to shut that website down. Common Dreams explains Comcast is now threatening legal action, saying the website ComCastroTurf.com is infringing on its trademark. The cease and desist order dated last week says the domain name is confusingly similar to the Comcast trademark because it sounds the same, looks the same, and is spelled similarly to Comcast. The letter, signed by a cyber threat analyst at Looking Glass Cybersecurity Center, instructs the domain holder, Fight for the Future, to take all steps necessary to see that the domain name is assigned to Comcast and says that if the order is not immediately complied with, then the cable giant will pursue its claims for damages. So what we have here is an example of a behemoth like Comcast trying to shut down, censor, and bully a smaller website before net neutrality has even been destroyed yet. So they're telling you they're going to protect net neutrality and everything that we're worried about would never come to fruition. They're saying they would never bully smaller websites. They would keep the internet free and open, but yet here they are before these new rules even get past being bullies to smaller websites that are trying to protect net neutrality. So this is a really nefarious thing that Comcast is doing, and it's a snapshot of what's to come if net neutrality is killed. You are putting the hands of the internet in control of fascistic corporations that don't care about anything but profits. They don't care about how the internet gives us access to crucial information and how it's become a part of democracy. And again, Comcast stated, Comcast supports strong, legally enforceable net neutrality protections that ensure a free and open internet for all of our customers. Then why are you trying to kill off a website, Comcast? This is also obvious. They're shameless. You know, this is... This is just brazen. Oh my God. Stop fucking lying. Everyone has to mobilize. We have to fight this. Humanistreport.com forward slash dash save the internet. All the resources you need will be right there. President Trump released his 2018 fiscal budget and it is so unusually cruel that it's something that could only be concocted in the mind of a greedy billionaire who just doesn't care about the peasants he looks down upon. Now, we'll get into the specifics, but just broadly speaking, we're looking at cuts to food stamps, education, Medicaid, Social Security, the EPA. I mean, it, it's just 
widely sweeping and it affects almost everything we care about. So Mother Jones explains, President Trump unveiled his 2018 budget today with more than $1 trillion in cuts over the next 10 years to government programs such as Medicaid, farm subsidies, affordable housing, and other anti-poverty programs. The budget includes $193 billion in cuts over a decade to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or food stamps. 25% of the program's budget. About 44 million people benefit from food stamps in the United States, especially poorer states in the Southeast. Now, the irony is that this will disproportionately impact states that voted for Donald Trump overwhelmingly. So, I mean, if you want to talk about voting against your own interests, this is it right here. Now, 25% is a substantial cut. This means that more people will lose access to food stamps and those that are able to keep receiving food stamps will be paid out less. So, you're going to have to skip some meals. Your family might not be fed. I mean, the program itself already has a budget that isn't enough to benefit everyone. They have to turn down a lot of people when they need it. Uh, and to cut it by 25% is just devastating. Now, when it comes to Medicaid, under Trump's proposal, he would nearly cut it in half by 2027. Now, this would actually entail reforming the program into a block grant or per capita grant to states, according to The Hill, and it would strip $610 billion from the program over 10 years. Now, this was the graphic that was tweeted out by Bernie Sanders, and it gives you a visual depiction of just how large this cut is. But that's not all. Donald Trump is also going back on a crucial campaign promise, and he's cutting Social Security. Now, at face value, it may not seem like that's the case, but Market Watch breaks it down. They explain the first budget proposed by the Trump White House doesn't cut old age payments to grandma and grandpa, but it does technically violate the president's 2016 campaign pledge to not touch Social Security. How? Well, the budget aims to curtail massive U.S. deficits in part by cutting payments to disabled workers by $72 billion over the next 10 years. The Disability Insurance Fund was created in 1956 in a series of amendments to beef up Social Security. That represents 5% of the disability benefits the government doled out in 2016. And Social Security Disability Insurance is inextricably linked to Social Security Insurance. They can't be separated, so Donald Trump will try to pretend like it's separate and say he kept his promise, but if you're cutting Social Security Disability Insurance, you are cutting Social Security, but we're not done there. So he's also cutting education, and according to NPR, President Trump's full budget proposal for fiscal year 20. 18 to be released Tuesday calls for a 9.2 billion or 13.5% spending cut to education. The cuts would be spread across K through 12 and aid to higher education according to documents released by the White House. Now here's what you can expect. Interest on student loans would no longer be subsidized, repayment options would be more limited, a student loan forgiveness program would be phased out that applies to government workers. And additionally, spending on programs that train teachers and reduce class sizes, as well as after-school programs that disproportionately benefit poor children, will be cut. Now, in total, The Hill reports that 66 programs would be eliminated under Donald Trump's budget. This includes an energy assistance program for the poor, a flood hazard mapping program, the National Wildlife Refuge Fund, OSHA training grants, the Green Climate Fund and Global Climate Change Initiative, the Global Agriculture and Food Security Program, and much, much more. And while all of these programs that disproportionately benefit the poor are being cut, 
Donald Trump recently announced a $57 billion increase to military spending. So it's not just that Donald Trump is the political equivalent of Ebenezer Scrooge that doesn't care about the poor. This budget tells me that he actually holds the poor in contempt. He hates the poor. And the ways that this would hurt the poor and exacerbate poverty and income inequality, it's just unimaginable to me. It's so cruel. We actually know what his administration thinks about those in poverty because according to the Housing and Urban Development Secretary, Ben Carson, well, he states that I think poverty to a large extent is also a state of mind. Is that so? Poverty is a state of mind. You just got to wish yourself out of it, guys. Just think hard enough and maybe look in the mirror and say, I'm rich three times, click your shoes together, and you might be like Donald Trump, who was born into wealth. You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. This is what happens when you elect billionaires and people so out of touch that they don't care about the poor. Now, Bernie Sanders was on MSNBC to talk about Trump's budget, and he lays it out very clearly and tells us exactly what's at stake. That budget that Trump has presented is a grotesquely immoral budget. It is a horrific budget. What it says is that if you are the richest person in this country, the richest family, you're going to get over a $50 billion tax break through the repeal of the estate tax. $50 billion tax break for one family. But if you are a low-income pregnant woman, you're going to lose nutrition programs for yourself and your baby. Kids are going to be thrown off of Head Start. Millions of kids will lose their health insurance. Senior citizens will lose perhaps the one nutritious meal a day they get, the Meals on Wheels program after-school programs would be cut or eliminated. Kids who are desperately trying to figure out how they can afford to go to college, working-class kids, will see Pell Grants cut. Environmental programs will be decimated. So what you are looking at is a massive transfer of wealth from working families, from seniors, from children, into the hands of the very, very richest billionaires in this country. It is an outrageous budget. It is a budget that the American people do not want. It's a budget that should not see the light of day in the U.S. Senate. Uh, what they are doing is hocus-pocus accounting. Among many other things, what they are saying is if we give hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks to the very wealthiest people in this country, somehow it's going to automatically translate into an economic growth and increase tax revenue for the federal government. Unfortunately, that is a theory that has never worked. What this is all about, and it's the same thing as Trump's health care proposal. His health care proposal, as you know, threw 24 million people off of health insurance but provided $300 billion in tax breaks for the top 2%. His budget makes massive cuts in programs that working families need at the same time it gives unbelievable cuts to the people on top. That is what all of this is about. It's to make the very wealthiest people richer at the expense of working families. And that's exactly it. We have a billionaire who's cutting assistance to the very, very poor and who's giving tax breaks simultaneously to the very, very rich. We no longer live in a democracy. It's been hijacked by the oligarchs. We live in an oligarchy. We live in a plutocracy. We live 
in a system where it's no longer about elites controlling politicians, but elites are now just in control via Donald Trump, and they're just doing what they want to do. It doesn't matter how much you hurt the poor. It doesn't matter if you exacerbate income inequality. As long as you get those tax breaks, as long as you are able to grow your wealth, that's all they care about. But guess what? If you starve the poor so much, not only are you fostering another inevitable economic crash, but you're making the poor so hungry, you're starving them so much that we're not going to have anyone left or anything left to eat but the wealthy. So uh, think wisely about what you're doing because if the economy crashes because of your greed, that's going to hurt you too. President Donald Trump has exposed himself as a hypocrite time and again, and at this point, I think that saying that Donald Trump is a hypocrite is akin to saying water is wet. It's just a fact. Nobody can debate it. He's a gigantic hypocrite, and he's contradicted himself on numerous occasions. Now, something that he flip-flopped on is particularly egregious because of what's at stake. So he just closed the biggest weapons deal to Saudi Arabia ever. And what Saudi Arabia will undoubtedly do now is use those weapons to slaughter innocent civilians in Yemen because this is what they've been doing for the past two years. So Donald Trump just greenlit war crimes in Yemen by giving Saudi Arabia this arms deal. Now, Time reports when President Donald Trump closed the nearly 110 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia on Saturday, his deputy spirits soared. Policy advisor Jared Kushner high-fived National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster as he entered the room where they held talks with Saudi officials. Aide Gary Cohn told Pool reporters the deals represented a lot of money, big dollars, big dollars. The weapons sale was one of the largest in history, totaling close to $110 billion worth of tanks, artillery, radar systems, armored personnel carriers, and Black Hawk helicopters. The package also included ships, patrol boats, Patriot missiles, and THAAD missile defense systems. Now, there's actually more to this deal than what the article states, because there's another $350 billion in weapons that they will be selling to Saudis, but over a 10-year period. Period. So this is, we're looking at more than 400 billion in weapons being sold to Saudi Arabia. Again, a country that has committed war crimes in Yemen, and Trump is endorsing this massacre with this weapons deal. But this isn't the only way that President Trump has been bending over backwards to appease the Saudis because he's chosen Saudi Arabia as his first international trip as president. Why? Well, they've been trying to butter Donald Trump up for quite some time. In fact, they've been trying to butter up a lot of our lawmakers. And when I say butter up, I mean lobby them, bribe them, and exert their influence. So according to The Intercept, since 2015, the kingdom has expanded the number of foreign agents on retainer to 145 individuals, up from 25 registered agents during the previous two-year period. President Trump, who less than a year ago vilified Saudi Arabia's influence over the American political establishment, is now marching to the Saudi lobbyist tune. Not long after Trump's election victory, Saudi's lobbyists began booking rooms in the Trump International Hotel in Washington, and last month, Michael Cohen, Trump's longtime personal lawyer at the Trump Organization, signed on to work with Squire... Patton Boggs, a firm retained to lobby on behalf of the Saudi kingdom. And the Saudis have decided to start lobbying American politicians more, not just because they want these weapons deals. 
They actually want policy concessions. So McClatchy explains, Saudi officials have been quietly lobbying the administration and Congress to overturn the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, which led more than 800 families to file suit in New York in March against the Saudi regime. So the Saudis increased their influence and Trump just rewarded them with an arms deal. And this relationship that Trump cultivated is problematic even by his own standards because during the campaign trail, as The Intercept explained, he railed against Saudi Arabia, and rightly so, because they are a totalitarian regime. They do not allow women to drive. Women are not even allowed to leave the house unless they have a male companion. People who are revealed to be LGBT are killed. People who are atheist are killed. They execute people frequently, probably more frequently than most countries. They are a totalitarian regime in every sense of the word, but Donald Trump is rewarding them for their bad behavior. It's something that I find particularly appalling, but everything that I'm thinking, everything that you're thinking, it's already been expressed by someone who we all support and admire. Tulsi Gabbard, she called it like it is. She released a statement saying Saudi Arabia has spent hundreds of billions of dollars spreading their extreme Wahhabi Salafist ideology around the world, creating fertile ground for terrorist organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda to recruit, while simultaneously providing direct support to terrorist groups who pose a direct threat to the United States' interests and who are fighting to overthrow the Syrian government. The hypocrisy in the Trump administration's actions towards Saudi Arabia began in February 2017, with the newly appointed CIA director Mike Pompeo presenting Saudi Crown Prince Bin Naif with George Tenet Award and recognition of Prince Bin Naif's excellent intelligence performance in the domain of counterterrorism and his unbound contribution to realize world security and peace. This hypocrisy continues now as the Trump administration talks tough against ISIS and terrorism while selling weapons to supporting and praising a country that beheads dissidents, oppresses women, persecutes religious minorities, atheists, and LGBT people, and is the greatest supporter of terror groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS in the world today. This arms deal will enable Saudi Arabia to use U.S.-made weapons in their war crimes against Yemeni civilians in a brutal civil war and continue perpetuating human rights atrocities at home and abroad. That's a concise way to call Donald Trump the biggest hypocrite in the world. Tulsi Gabbard put everything I was thinking into words, but was much more eloquent and articulate in doing so. If you are a Donald Trump supporter and you voted for him, particularly because you liked his non-interventionist rhetoric, even though, you know, there are many red flags and a lot of us who were paying attention didn't believe him. But if you voted for Donald Trump because of his non-interventionist rhetoric, you were duped over and uh, you need to make sure that you fight alongside uh, alongside progressives to put pressure on him because this is not acceptable. Killing civilians in Yemen is not acceptable. And by giving them this weapons deal, among other things, is a tacit endorsement of war crimes. But Donald Trump, he's a bloodthirsty neoconservative war criminal himself. So, you know, I don't think he is not sleeping any less at night because of this. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office's newest score of the Republicans' American Health Care Act determined that the bill would leave 23 million more people uninsured if the bill is, in fact, codified into law. Now, surprisingly, this score of the AHCA is actually slightly more kind to it than the last iteration of the bill. But nonetheless, that's still a problem. If 23 million more people will be uninsured, that's a huge issue. However, 
I'm willing to bet every dollar I have that Republicans will actually boast about this and say, well, you know, it, less people will be uninsured under this iteration of the bill than the last iteration, so maybe we should pass it. So, according to The Hill, the total is slightly less than the CBO's accounting of a previous version of the bill. The CBO also found that an amendment allowing states to waive certain regulations would mean premiums would be somewhat lower than in the previous version of the bill, and slightly more people would get coverage because they are buying plans that cover fewer healthcare services. In states that let insurers charge sick people more, some people with pre-existing conditions would lose coverage because they could not afford the premiums despite extra funding provided in the bill meant to mitigate that, CBO said. So let's kind of break this down because what they're doing at the state level in rolling back regulations is ensuring that more people would get insurance. And while that's technically true, the bill fails to take into account the quality of care. So you'll pay money for some coverage and you'll be able to say that you're covered, but in actuality, you're not really getting your money's worth. And this will create a race to the bottom because insurance companies will advertise affordable healthcare plans starting at $49.99 a month, for example. But they won't tell you about the stipulations on what's covered, and that might not cover anything meaningful. And furthermore, the fact that this bill allows insurance companies to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions means that people that need care the most won't be able to get it. So what they're doing by allowing states to roll back regulations from the Affordable Care Act is it allows insurance companies to dupe people over even more, and they may think they have insurance, but when they actually have to go see a doctor they'll realize that they were paying for nothing because it will cover literally nothing almost. So this is one of the worst so-called healthcare bills that I think has ever been created. And it's worse than the last iteration in spite of the CBO estimate because of what it allows states to do. Now, Bernie Sanders articulated everything that I feel about this pathetic excuse of a bill. Uh, and he said it perfectly. We can call this legislation whatever we want. You can call it a destroy health care bill, you could call it a tax break for the rich bill, but we should not call it a health care bill because I have never seen a health care bill which throws 23 million Americans off of health insurance. That's not a health care bill. Uh, it's not a health care bill when you cut Medicaid by $800 billion denying health insurance to children or some of the poorest people in this country or middle-class people who, wanna, who need help with nursing home care for their parents. It is not a health care pill when you defund Planned Parenthood and deny 2.5 million women their choice of health care providers. It is not a health care bill when you force older workers to pay two, three, four times more for the health care that they currently get. So call it whatever you want. But please do not call this bill a health care bill. It's not a health care bill. He's 100% right. You know, even though it concerns health care, you can't call something a health care bill if it takes health care away from people. I think that's a misnomer. What we really should be calling this is an anti-health care bill, because by referring to it as a health care bill, there's this implication that it's going to be giving people health care and increasing access to people that want health care. But that's that's not going to be the case. By allowing states to determine whether or not insurance companies can discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions means that people would die. And if people die from a bill, from a so-called healthcare bill, then that's not a healthcare bill. That's an unmitigated disaster that we have to fight. Now, thankfully, Bernie Sanders is fighting for us 
And he has a plan that might actually get this bill killed. As you know, on the reconciliation, the help committee is required to save at least $1 billion. Uh, it is very possible that the new bill does not meet that basic requirement uh, because of the high-risk pool and stabilization amendments that were added to the bill. It is possible that, in fact, that bill may cost the help committee some $28 billion rather than save a billion. And if that's the case, reconciliation is not a process they could use. But the question is, what exactly does that mean? Well, Politicus USA explains, Senator Bernie Sanders pointed out that if the American Health Care Act does not meet the requirement for the Senate Health Committee to save $1 billion, reconciliation can't be used to pass the bill, and it will require 60 votes to get through the Senate. It may sound like legislative jargon, but this is a big problem for Republicans. The health care bill has to save $1 billion. If it adds to the deficit, as Senator Sanders suggested that it might, the bill will be effectively dead in the Senate. Now, this is really important because it's going to be a challenge for Republicans to even muster the 50 plus 1 votes. But I mean, if they are required to get 60 votes, this bill is effectively dead on arrival. It's just not going to happen. So what we can do now and what I think would go a long way is if everyone were to call their senators in their states and let them know to vote against the AHCA. Because in the meanwhile, I mean, the vote is coming up. We don't know when specifically at this point. But if you call your senator and let him or her know that this bill would be a disaster, that you would be harmed by this bill, then you can make a big difference. I mean, phone calls to politicians makes a difference. Not much people believe that. But if you ask politicians, if you ask people like Keith Ellison, they'll tell you that there is value in doing this, real instrumental value. It doesn't just make you feel better. They are required to take down your calls and your message. So you might not be able to talk to a human being. It's very rare. However, calling can make a difference. And you don't just want to tell them to vote against the AHCA. You want to tell them to support Medicare for all. Because if we really want to get away from this threat of Republicans taking away health care, we can only do that by moving to a single-payer system. And so long as we have the Affordable Care Act, Republicans will always want to attack it. And even though the ACA has a majority of support when you look at public opinion polls, if we pass single-payer, they will never be able to touch it because that will be overwhelmingly popular. If you poll people when it comes to Social Security... The American people love Social Security. These types of so-called socialist programs, they are overwhelmingly popular. And if you think Republicans are dumb enough to touch a single-payer system after we have it, they're not. I know they're dumb. I know that they are the party of death and destruction, but even they're not dumb enough to touch it. And this is why they've been unable to privatize Social Security, even though Wall Street has been salivating over it for decades. It's because it's overwhelmingly popular. And there will be a huge political price to pay if you are the party that America knows cut their Social Security. And that would be the case if you are the party that took away single-payer health care. So Democrats have to get on board with Medicare for All. And you can make a difference by calling them because Medicare for All is the only way to go. Greg Gianforte is a Republican running in a special election in Montana against a true progressive endorsed by Bernie Sanders named Rob Quist. Now, Rob Quist is the real deal. He supports Medicare for All. Basically, he is the Montana equivalent of Bernie Sanders. And Greg Gianforte is your typical Republican, except he varies in one really unique way. So, 
Like other Republicans, he doesn't like being asked tough questions by reporters. However, he kind of has a different approach. So, you know, unlike his colleagues, he doesn't just run away from reporters. He doesn't argue with them. He body slams them. I'm not making this up. So on May 24th, The Guardian's Ben Jacobs tweeted out, Greg Gianforte just body slammed me and broke my glasses. And while we don't have a video of the incident, eyewitnesses and audio seems to confirm it. To the CBO score, because you know you were waiting to make your decision about healthcare until you saw the bill and it just came out. And what yeah, you and we'll talk it. to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if okay, you have to react Speak right with now. Shane, please. But you don't. You guys, the last Jesus time you came here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Jesus. Get the hell out of here. The last guy did the same thing. You were the guardian? Yes, and you just broke my glasses. You, the last guy did the same damn thing. You just body slammed me and broke my glasses. Get the hell out of here. You'd like me to get the hell out of here, I'd also like to call the police. Can I get you guys' names? Hey, hey you gotta leave. He just body slammed me. You gotta leave. And this is a photo of Jacobs with his glasses broken that he took while he was being driven away in an ambulance. Now, as someone who wears glasses, if you break someone's glasses, that's unforgivable. <laughs> that is unforgivable. So um, not only is Greg Gianforte a horrible person, but you broke his glasses. That's a special level of evil for those of us that depend on glasses or contacts in order to see. Now, more details about the story. According to The Guardian, the Republican candidate for Montana's congressional seat has been charged with misdemeanor assault after he is alleged to have slammed a Guardian reporter to the floor on the eve of the state's special election, breaking his glasses and shouting, get the hell out of here. He took me to the ground, Jacob said by phone from the back of an ambulance. I think he wailed on me once or twice. He got on me and I think he hit me. This is the strangest thing that has ever happened to me in reporting on politics. Fox News reporter Alicia Acuna, field producer Faith Mongan, and photographer Keith Raley witnessed the incident at Gianforte's campaign headquarters in Montana, according to an account published by foxnews.com. After Jacobs asked Gianforte his question... Acuna wrote, Gianforte grabbed Jacobs by the neck with both hands and slammed him into the ground behind him. Jacobs subsequently reported the incident to the police. The Gallatin County Sheriff's Office said on Wednesday night it had completed its investigation and that Gianforte had been issued with a charge of misdemeanor assault. A statement by campaign spokesman Shane Scanlon blamed Jacobs for the altercation, saying that he entered the office without permission, aggressively shoved a recorder in Greg's face, and began asking badgering questions. And since this happened, prominent local newspapers who endorsed Gianforte have rescinded their endorsements. And anything that his campaign said has been refuted by the audio footage that we have and also by the statement from witnesses. I wasn't really paying attention until all of a sudden I heard just a giant crash. Um, I saw sort of feet fly in the air. It, the, the, the door to that room was about half open, so I couldn't see the whole thing, but I heard the crash. I saw his feet fly um, in the way that someone's feet can fly only when they're ending up on the ground. So this is one of the weirdest stories I think I've ever talked about on the show. Body slamming a reporter who was asking you a question, and, you know, he wasn't badgering him, he wasn't being aggressive at all, at all. In fact, everything that we heard from the recording was that 
Ben Jacobs was relatively monotone. He wasn't being aggressive at all. He was asking a, le a legitimate question. He asked him about the CBO score of the AHCA and said, do you have any comments about it? I mean, if you're going to be elected to the House of Representatives, we're going to want to know what you think about this bill that may or may not be codified into law in the coming months. But he was body slammed. Unbelievable. Now, the most interesting part about this story is that this was the day before the election took place, as the article stated, and Greg Gianforte went on to win. He defeated a true progressive who would have given people in Montana Medicare for All. He would have co-sponsored HR 676, a guy who body slams reporters won and beat Rob Quist, a true progressive. Good job, Montana. Uh, you... <laughs> You gave us a new Republican all-star. I mean, you may be the new Texas after this because Texas gave us, you know, superstars like Louis Gohmert and Ted Cruz and George Bush and Rick Perry. But you are giving us Greg Gianforte. <laughs> Unreal. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say. And, you know, to me, this story is so surreal that as I was preparing for the show i was laughing as i was reading the article because i i thought to myself this can't be reality this can't be real it can't be the case that a republican who body slammed a reporter went on to win an election against a true progressive what the hell is happening and bernie sanders endorsed rob quist and he was surging so the fact that you know he came as close as he did is still surprising but nonetheless it's crazy to me DNC Chairman Tom Perez isn't a very popular figure, and this is because he continues to stump for the Democratic Party and gives these speeches across the country, but even though he's talking and his mouth is moving and there's noise coming out of it, he's not saying much of anything at all. So he recently had a speech at a university and the students, unsurprisingly, didn't really like what he had to say. This time of my lifetime, we have a president who is... In, I don't know who he is, Putin or Trump, they're in a bromance. This is really weird. He, 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 he's trying to kill health care for people, but he doesn't take, he doesn't like the name Trump Care. He says it's Ryan Care. You know what? Trump Care, Ryan Care, I'll tell you what it is. It's I don't care because they don't give a shit John Burton about the people they're hurting this is really weird this is really weird i'll tell you what's weird that speech was really weird i mean who what are you saying you're saying that donald trump is in a bromance with vladimir putin however donald trump bombed putin's ally in syria he is doing everything he can to piss off vladimir putin he told putin that he would be withdrawing from the nuclear arms treaty that putin and obama agreed to so what you're saying makes no sense. Uh, and I do, however, agree with the fact that Republicans don't care about people, but don't pretend that Democrats give a shit about people either, because they don't. Because even though Republicans want to repeal the Affordable Care Act and throw millions of people off of their health care, Democrats don't care about the 30 million people that are already uninsured. They just got the ACA passed, and that's their accomplishment they're going to run with. They're perfectly satisfied with the thought that 30 million people don't have health insurance in this country. Now, one of my viewers sent me a video from uh, a different angle telling me what it's like when you watch Tom Perez spit platitudes in person. Oh. 
So what the students were yelling about, if you didn't hear them because there's a lot of boos and heckles, was single payer. They were yelling single payer. They were yelling, get corporate money out of politics. But Tom Perez wasn't hearing any of it. He didn't want to deviate from the script. So this is what happened next. Hey, shut the fuck up or go outside, all right? That, my friends, is not what unity looks like. Tom Perez is someone that is a very powerful individual in this country. He has a lot of power. He can use that power to change, li to change lives, but he's not doing that. And he was ignoring what they were saying. If you look at the video, there was someone holding up a sign that said, Healthcare is a human right. And Tom Perez wasn't having any of it. So they then send in one of Tom Perez's goons to tell the supporters to shut the fuck up. Rather than listening to them and hearing them out, they were told to shut the fuck up when they have legitimate concerns about healthcare and net neutrality and the way that the country is going. Tom Perez, he doesn't want to hear us out. He wants to talk and wants us to be quiet. And if we dare to question him, then we're supposed to shut the fuck up. You have people in this audience that aren't just heckling him to be dicks. They are begging the Democratic Party to wake up. And the Democratic Party, people like Tom Perez, refuses to listen. And it's one of the many reasons why Tom Perez continues to get booed at every single speech he gives. It's because he's not listening. We're telling him, we want single pair. Defending the ACA is not enough. We want single pair. But... Tom Perez doesn't want single payer. He's not willing to move the party in that direction, even though he would be a hero. It would save lives. And on a recent appearance on Late Night with Seth Meyers, this was what Tom Perez had to say about Medicare for All. I would love it if I were king for a day to do something akin to Medicare for All because Medicare has been a very good program and it's helped a lot of people. So in other words, single payer is so difficult to accomplish it that you, you would have to be king for a day to get it done. And he didn't even unequivocally say if he were king for a day, hypothetically speaking, that he would do Medicare for all. He said he would do something akin to Medicare for all. So even if you were king for a day, you still might do something else like a public option, Tom. Really? This is why the Democratic Party is wiped out at every single level. They refuse to listen to us. They're saying it's too hard. They can never get it done. For some reason, all the other countries that are modern and industrialized and democracies, they can get it done, but we can't get it done. You'd have to be king for a day to get it done. Saying that healthcare for all, Medicare for all, healthcare as a right will never happen sounds pretty familiar to me. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. What you just heard right there was a losing message. The person who said that lost. Never, ever, never, ever, never, ever. And Tom Perez is now taking that losing strategy and he's using that same message. He's doubling down on a losing strategy. You'll never get healthcare. It'll never happen. It's only in your dreams. You're crazy. It's pie in the sky. Well, here's an idea, Tom. We're never going to back down from Medicare for all. It's non-negotiable, and the reason why you're being heckled is because you refuse to listen to us. It's because the Democratic Party is doubling down on your losing strategy and refusing to listen to our plea for Medicare for All, which is a policy that would save lives that's overwhelmingly popular. 
but you don't want to do that. So, so long as you continue to ignore us, you will be heckled. And rather than telling people who are heckling you to shut the fuck up, maybe you should try listening to them. Maybe you should shut the fuck up, Tom Perez, because you don't know what you're talking about. I think we can all agree that the quality of Bill Maher's show started to degrade once he turned into a full-blown Democratic Partisan loyalist and Hillary Clinton apologist. So what he typically likes to do now is look down at us peasants from his pedestal and yell at us for not doing what he wants us to do. Now, I like to call this rich-splaining, but you can call this whatever you want, uh, because what he did recently, rich-splaining, berating progressives, is he took his smug, self-righteous, arrogant segments that he usually has against progressives to a whole new level when he decided to opportunistically exploit political issues in order to belittle one of the world's greatest intellectuals. Dr. Cornell West. I know this is uh, a matter close to your heart. Um, there was uh, uh, an acquittal this week of a police officer, Betty Jo Shelby from Tulsa. She shot Terrence Crutcher, a unarmed black man. Uh, she said she feared for her life. Uh, and then in South Carolina, Michael Slager shot Walter Scott in the back, running away, and that was a, a mistrial. And this, this argument that the cops get away with, I was fearful that they might do something erratic. I thought when you went into the police department, you understood that there was some danger in this job. I don't know where they got this idea that if I fear at all, I, I am allowed to shoot you. But that seems what's happening. And by the way, Trump is all for it, and Hillary Clinton wouldn't have been. Well, so... As someone who said they were equally awful, no, I'd like to say equally yes, awful. you did. I said one was a disaster, another was a catastrophe. Exactly my but a, point. But How a disaster is that better than a catastrophe. Well, that point was lost. <laughs> oh, I mean, that oh stop but, 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 it! But let, let, let's keep the focus where it belongs. The police have well, yet to go to jail when they end up in committing violence and murdering these young black brothers and sisters. Right. And the problem is we, they, we want a fair trial and for Hillary them, but there's a chronic racism that shot but, through and over and over again. But it's just not the police. Same is true with Wall Street. No Wall Street executives go to jail either. Rule of law comes down hard on the poor and the well-to-do get off or the police get off because they're protecting the property. But Hillary's first speech was about mass Hillary gave speeches about all kind of stuff, but it didn't have a whole lot of integrity in it, though, brother. That that, that's such bullshit. That's not bullshit at all. Really? Look you, how they you, treated Bernie Sanders, man. They treated concerned about the Russians. Look how they treated Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Bernie would have won if he had a chance. He would have won if he had a chance. Don't, don't defend Hillary. Hillary can't even take responsibility for the fact that she lost the election. She Look what you did to him. On everybody, but, yeah. everybody but, he, but he's so, so don't, wrong. Don't, don't try Hillary out he, on he, me. He's, he's, he's so wrong. Oh, no, no, no. He's so wrong. She's better than Trump, but don't don't lie about the sister. Just She's better than Trump. That's all I'm saying. A lot better than Trump in so many ways. And just just that, on that, this, that, 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 that doesn't just, take too much. Just, that doesn't take too much. Who is it better than Trump? <laughs> That's not an answer. It's glib. It's beneath That's you. Not, no, it's for not someone who's su for someone who's such an intellectual, that is that answer is beneath you. Let me tell you why it's not. It's precisely because when I ask you, would you vote for, for, for Donald Trump over David Duke, you say you wouldn't vote for either one.
You're not talking. Yeah, Hillary is not David Duke. No, no, but it's this. If you're talking about Wall Street, if you're talking about militarism, if you're talking about dealing with folk in Honduras, she's light years better than him about mis- all of them. All of those issues, Hillary is unacceptable. No, she is not unacceptable. The, the less she was, why are we still arguing the last election? And we got stuff going on because they haven't learned the lesson that we need to win the next election. No, that's why. That, to me, was absolutely rage-inducing. Now, I watched it multiple times at this point to prepare for the show to talk about it, and uh, each time uh, I, I get angry again. It's just, it's so aggravating. I mean, the nerve of this guy. And he states here, he looks at Cornell West, he says, I know this is a matter close to your heart, as he talked about police brutality against African Americans. But my question to Bill is, isn't this a matter that should be close to everyone's heart? Don't you care about state-sanctioned violence against black bodies? Or was Bill Maher just bringing up this point because he thought he would be able to use this as a means of attacking and discrediting Dr. Cornell West? I mean, that's, that's really the question that we should be asking here because Bill Maher doesn't really talk about criminal justice reform on his show. So this one time when he chooses to bring it up and pretends to be outraged about it, My question to Bill is, are you just bringing this subject up as a means of you being opportunistic so you can discredit Dr. Cornell West? I think it's a legitimate question, and a journalist from The Root explains what she thinks Marr was trying to do. She states he used their black lives as leads and their slayings as segues into what he really wanted to do. Put their blood on West's hands and on anyone who was critical of or didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. So if you wanted to argue with Dr. Cornell West, you could have just argued with Cornell West. It would have been less rage-inducing, but what you decided to do was exploit a political issue. You chose to be a political opportunist because you thought that you'd be able to score some political points. That, to me, is just... It's a special kind of evil. Now, I I could understand if Bill Maher was talking about this issue all the time, but he rarely talks about it. So if it's really an issue that's dear to your heart, then why do you only bring it up when there's someone there that you want to attack? He also states that Hillary Clinton is a lot better than Donald Trump in many ways. And Cornell West made the point that if you're talking about militarism and Wall Street or Honduras, she's not better. But Marr insisted that she is light years better than him about all of them. But that's just factually incorrect. And what he's doing here is being intellectually lazy. He's not willing to actually think about the argument that Cornell West is putting forward. He just wants to dismiss it and say Hillary Clinton is better on every single issue. But that's not true. You can actually make the case that Hillary Clinton is to the right of Donald Trump on foreign policy. So, for example, when Donald Trump bombed Syrian airfields, Hillary Clinton came out and said that she would have bombed them more. And she said that she wouldn't have warned Russian soldiers. So, in other words, she would have risked World War III as a means of showing strength. So, she is to the right of Donald Trump. She also has been advocating for a Syrian no-fly zone. Now, prior to the election, Donald Trump expressed support for this position as well. But nobody pushed for it in the election as hard as Hillary Clinton did. Maybe besides Jeb Bush. And if Russia violates this no-fly zone, then we shoot down their planes. So Hillary Clinton literally has policies that would facilitate World War III, but Bill Maher isn't even willing to have a debate about it. Bill Maher is just 
unequivocally rejecting any and everything that Cornell West has to say because he has a point to prove. He planned to attack Cornell West before he even came on the show. And that, to me, is intellectually lazy. Bill Maher thinks he's right and everyone is wrong and everyone who doesn't see the world through his rich view is just wrong and they're an idiot. And it's so frustrating to see him berate someone who I respect so much. Now, when it comes to Wall Street, Trump may be terrible, but Hillary Clinton would have been only marginally better if we were lucky and applied constant pressure to her. So that's why many people felt compelled to vote against both of them. Because regardless if Bill Maher wants to think that voters are stupid, regardless of what you think, voters are rational. They make rational decisions and they think about whether or not it's worth it to come out, take time off of work, spend hours in line and vote for someone who's only going to be marginally better than uh, the op their opponent. And many people didn't want to come out and support Hillary Clinton. And if you give voters the option of a Republican and Republican light, nine times out of ten, as we've seen, they go for the full Republican. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson asked, why are we still arguing about the last election? And Bill said, well, because they haven't learned the lesson that we need to win the next election. No, Bill, you haven't learned the lesson that we need to learn to win the next election because you still continue to blame third-party voters, but you're not willing to even acknowledge how that's harmful. So the United States has one of the lowest voter turnout rates in the world, yet you still choose to blame people that came out to vote when we should be praising people that decided to take the time to come out and vote, even if they voted for someone who you disagree with. And he's choosing to blame third-party voters rather than blaming the 9% of Democrats who flipped and voted for Donald Trump or the people who just chose not to vote at all. And he also didn't mention how Hillary Clinton and the DNC disenfranchised half of the base by rigging the primaries and then subsequently shunning progressives by choosing a running mate that was to the right of her. So many people did not support Hillary Clinton because she was too right-wing to be running in the so-called liberal party and she chose someone to the right of her. Why? Because she thought that it would be a better idea to win over more Trump voters than half of the base that she disenfranchised with the DNC. That is what I like to call hubris, because she was so sure that she would win this election that she thought she had us on lock. She thought she had Bernie Sanders and progressives on lock, but she didn't, and she lost. And furthermore, think about the lesson that Bill Maher thinks we should be learning. The lesson that he thinks we should learn is shut up and take whatever the Democratic Party gives you. But as we've seen time and again, voters reject that. They just don't come out to support corporate policies and neoliberal democrats so if you really want to win the next election bill then you need to listen to us rather than telling us to shut up and while i agree that hillary clinton is the lesser of two evils and even though i'm not necessarily averse to voting for the lesser of two evils i'm not going to vote for that level of evil because those two choices are so evil that it's as if we had no choice at all it was the illusion of choice and i'll say it again bill what did you do to help hillary clinton get elected because bernie sanders supporters we put in the time and the money and the grassroots energy to defeat donald trump by campaigning for bernie sanders but all you did was sit in your studio and tell us that bernie sanders had no chance of winning that was something that probably demoralized a lot of voters and discouraged them to come out and vote for bernie sanders uh but yet when it came time uh, for us to vote in the general, you did nothing. You still 
critiqued progressives. You brought Sarah Silverman on the show, someone who told us we were being ridiculous because we were angry that the primary was rigged, and you told us that we should vote for Hillary Clinton no matter what. But did you actually phone bank for Hillary Clinton, Bill? Did you actually knock on some doors and hand out flyers and support of Hillary Clinton, Bill? No, all you did was talk down to us. So if you want to find someone to blame for Hillary Clinton, maybe look in the mirror and ask yourself what you could have done to help bolster her campaign even further. But you didn't do that because you want to blame other people. You don't want to blame the Democratic Party's establishment for repeatedly failing us. You want to blame other people. And that's not acceptable. You don't have the persuasive argument. Now, Bill Maher, he took his condescension up to level 100 when he literally decided to start talking about how, well, you know, I'm the adult because I decided to make the responsible decision in voting for neoliberal corporatist Hillary Clinton. Life doesn't give you two great choices. Adults choose the better. Brother there Bill, is no great one. I on live the- in New Jersey. If I had voted for Hillary Clinton, it would have made a whip of difference because she needed to win Wisconsin. She needed to win Ohio. She didn't go to Wisconsin. I live in the District of Columbia. So, so you yeah, know what? It made less these, of a difference. These That's not black why you vote. brothers that you're always talking about yes. wouldn't lose their health care under Hillary Clinton, That's- and they will under Donald Trump if he gets his way. So, please, I don't know. I don't know who you think you're standing up for. No, but I, look, well, let me put it this way, though, brother. Let me put it this way. You are absolutely right in terms of these particular instances in which the difference would have been made but for you to have to then steal hide and conceal the underside of hillary clinton and and end up lying about her contributes to the lies that's been pervasive that's my point my aim is not just the one so every single reasonable point that cornell west made went right over bill maher's head or he was just being intentionally obtuse and didn't want to listen and The most frustrating part for me was when he grabbed Cornell West by the shoulder and like looked him in the eyes and basically got on his level because Cornell West is so dumb. He's not a bright intellectual thinker that millions of people look up to. Bill Maher had to get on his level because Cornell West is so dumb, according to Bill Maher. And he said, these poor brothers you're talking about wouldn't lose their health care under Hillary Clinton, but they will if Trump gets his way. Okay, so Bill wants to talk about health care. That's great because I love talking about health care. Bill Maher says that, you know, if Donald Trump and the Republicans get their way and the AHCA does become codified into law, then 23 million more people will be uninsured. That's true. However, what Bill doesn't talk about is how under the ACA, 30 million people are already uninsured. So 30 million people being uninsured is fine. But if it's 50 million, then that's when we have to start paying attention and worrying about how much people are uninsured in the country. But Bill Maher doesn't ever talk about Medicare for All, does he? He rarely mentions it on his show. Rarely. If ever. So he only cares about health care if it means he can defend the Democratic Party or Hillary Clinton. He doesn't actually care about the people who currently are left out under the Affordable Care Act who cannot receive health care because Democrats were cowards and they caved to the health insurance industry rather than listening to voters who the overwhelming majority of their base, the Democratic voting base, supports a single-payer health care system. Now, Bill Maher doesn't really care that much about health insurance, and the reason why he probably doesn't talk about Medicare for All is because his net worth is $30 million. So he probably doesn't even realize that us peasants are still not able to afford health care. People are still dying. People are still going bankrupt because they can't afford health care. Or they might have health care, but they still can't afford care because their deductibles are so 
high. But if Bill actually cared about healthcare, he would be advocating for Medicare for All in his show relentlessly. But again, it's just another opportunity for him to make a political point. So he decided to pretend to care about healthcare, much like he pretended to care about black lives, in order to berate Cornell West. Now, they also got into a discussion about Mike Pence and how it would be preferable and better for everyone if Donald Trump was impeached and Mike Pence became the president. Bill Maher is just so out of touch that at this point, I don't think he could tell his asshole from his elbow. That's how obtuse he is. Because regardless if Mike Pence might be nicer than Donald Trump and less bombastic than Donald Trump, Mike Pence is to the right of Donald Trump. Mike Pence is more anti-gay. Mike Pence is to the right of Donald Trump when it comes to trade policies. What part of that do you not understand? Just because you have someone who is seemingly a more typical Republican, even though he's more right-wing than Donald Trump, that's preferable to Bill Maher because it would make him feel better. But he doesn't actually want to talk about the policies that Mike Pence would be able to push and how Mike Pence is actually more dangerous because he's more politically calculative. So he'd be able to push through these harmful agendas. Meanwhile, every time Donald Trump does something, he goes and tweets about it. So we know what Donald Trump is doing. We wouldn't really know what Mike Pence is doing. But according to Bill Maher, you're wrong if you disagree with him. So Cornell West is the real deal and he actually cares about the issues bill maher however is just an opportunistic intellectual lightweight who only brings up certain issues if it means he can score some political points and prove a point to someone he dislikes or disrespects so what he does is he projects his narrow view of the world onto society and thinks that anyone that disagrees with him is dumb well that's not the case bill and this is my message to bill maher on behalf of all progressives go fuck yourselves with a locally grown organic cucumber Democrats have been wiped out at every level of government and with the 2018 election ahead of them, they know they've got to come up with a strong, cohesive message. Now, the problem is that whenever you ask one of the Democratic Party's leaders or DNC leaders what the party stands for, they don't have a meaningful answer because the party doesn't really stand for anything because they continue to take corporate donations. I like to call them bribes, but they are bankrolled by large multinational corporations, by Wall Street, and they're refusing to represent voters. But don't fret because they know that they've got to come up with something. They need one message, a cohesive message that will resonate with voters. And basically what they've done now is they've narrowed it down to two issues. So Politico has an article titled, Healthcare or Russia? Democrats divided on 2018 focus. They don't know if they should focus on healthcare or Russia. Are you fucking kidding me? This is uh, one of the few articles that it left me speechless because I don't know what to say about this. <laughs> you know, there may be 30 million people that are left uninsured, even with the Affordable Care Act codified into law. There may be people who can't afford to buy anything because they are crippled with student debt, but so long as we get to the bottom of this Russia story, then that's all we care about. Our lives will be complete. I don't even think we have to go any further and read the article, but let's go ahead and dive in anyway. So, the Democratic Party is embroiled in a debate over where they should focus their efforts to win back political power, healthcare or Russia. 
A raft of data has already tabbed the House Republican health care bill as highly unpopular, but after last week's explosive developments related to the Russia investigation, Democratic groups have commissioned polling to gauge just how damaging the probe could be to Republicans in 2018 midterms. They've also begun testing theories on how to make Trump's Russia problem into a House and Senate Republicans' Russia problem. American Bridge and the Center for American Progress, both of which have anti-Trump war rooms, have been the center of Russia messaging so far. CAP has pushed the so-called Moscow Project, which aims to be a one-stop shop for research and messaging on the scandal. But on the other hand, we should focus on the issues that affect people's lives, not just on what the media in the DC bubble is talking about, said Simone Sanders, the press secretary at Priorities USA. And for those of you that don't know, Simone Sanders was actually uh, Bernie Sanders' press secretary as well. So the fact that this is even a, a debate is embarrassing. It shows that we're already screwed. If the Democratic Party is divided on, you know, healthcare and climate change, that makes sense to me. But if they're divided on healthcare and Russia, there's no way that I could rationalize that in my mind. And let me just say this about the Russia bullshit. I don't care. You have presented zero meaningful evidence to implicate Russia in so-called election meddling or an election hack. Releasing emails of Hillary Clinton's own words does not constitute election meddling. It just doesn't. So unless you can put up evidence that shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Russia tried to hack into our voting booths, then shut the fuck up about Russia. I don't care about Russia. Russia isn't going to ensure that the residents of Flint have clean drinking water. Russia isn't going to undo the violence and harm caused to the Dakota Access Pipeline protesters. And maybe, just maybe it's the case, that those emails released by Russia, even though we don't have evidence of that at this point, or we haven't seen it, Maybe it's the case that those emails wouldn't have been damaging if Hillary Clinton wasn't corrupt in the first place. If Debbie Wasserman Schultz didn't try to rig the primaries against Bernie Sanders, I shouldn't say try, she successfully rigged the primaries against Bernie Sanders in the first place. That's not election rigging. Releasing emails that are proof of wrongdoing is not tantamount to election rigging. You want to know what is tantamount to election rigging? Purging Hundreds of thousands of people off of the voting rolls in pro-Bernie districts, stifling debate and banning candidates from participating in non-DNC-sanctioned debates so that way you can hide away Hillary Clinton's opponents is election meddling. Moving up red states on the primary schedule, that's meddling. Planting fake narratives, fake news about Bernie Sanders in the media and colluding with the media to give Hillary Clinton unfair advantages ahead of town halls to leak her questions, that is meddling with the election. Let's talk about that. But they don't want to talk about what's in the emails. They just want to scream about how uh, Russia meddled with the election. If, and if you don't believe that, then you're wrong. You're a crazy person. You're a lunatic. You're, you're a conspiracy theorist. You're fringe. When, if you really stop to think about it, we haven't seen the evidence. We're supposed to take the intelligence agencies at their word when, if they were so sure, maybe they would actually come on the record, but it's all anonymous sources. And let's just go back to, I don't care. Even if you can prove that Russia did, in fact, leak the DNCs and John Podesta's emails, I don't care. I don't care. I care about what was in those emails, but you want to know what I care more about than what was in those emails even? I care about the issues. Medicare for all. Net neutrality. 
pulling out of the wars that we've been in since before I was old enough to vote. That's what I care about. Focusing on Russia shows that the Democratic Party is opportunistic because they know that this issue is popular and the mainstream media is pushing it. So they're using this as an opportunity to attack Republicans when they don't really care about the issues. They don't care about health care. They're only going to pick an issue and what they choose will be determined on what will allow them to win because political parties, including the Democrats, only care about one thing, winning. They do not care about policy. They don't care about what the base wants when all they have to do to win is be progressive. Take Medicare for all, make that the cornerstone of your 2018 campaign and you will win. But they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that because their donors won't let them. So this is probably the biggest indication that what should be an easy win for them in 2018 will be a bloodbath because they're so stupid. They can't pull their head out of their own asses. They think that Russia is going to solve the problems that we have. If you don't want Russia to hack emails, allegedly hack emails, why don't you put a bill through Congress to increase cybersecurity, but constantly harping on it and now expanding this scandal to Senate and House Republicans, you're beating a dead horse to where the carcass doesn't even resemble a horse anymore. You've beat this so much that every time I hear the word Russia, I recoil. I don't care about that. Let's move on from that. Let's go ahead and talk about the issues. But again, they don't want to talk about the issues because they have no policy substance. So the fact that there's a divide and that this is even a debate shows that the Democratic Party lost already. They lost already. They're losers. We've got two stories this week that illustrate how progressives have been screwed over in two different states, Maine and Vermont. Now, I've previously talked about how these states both took efforts to enhance freedom and democracy. However, democracy was subverted and progressives were screwed over this week. So when it comes to Vermont, just last week, actually, I talked about how their legislature became the first in the country to pass a bill legalizing recreational marijuana. However, their so-called pot-skeptic governor decided to veto the bill. According to Raw Story, Vermont's governor on Wednesday halted at least temporarily efforts to become the ninth state to legalize the recreational use of marijuana, but offered to work with state legislators to resolve what he cited as the bill's shortcomings. In vetoing the measure to decriminalize possession of small amounts of the drug for adults and paved the way for a regulated market in the state, Republican Governor Phil Scott stressed he was not philosophically opposed to the concept which he said he views through a libertarian lens. But in an effort to get it right, he said the bill needs to improve protections for children and motorists. Scott said the bill should make clear that there will be no change in current penalties for giving or selling the drug to minors under 21 or near schools, and it should have stiffer penalties for smoking marijuana while driving or in front of children. To me, that is a pathetic reason to subvert democracy and veto the bill, because if you were paying attention then you would know that in states that have legalized recreational marijuana, states like Colorado, usage of pot among minors actually decreased once it became legal. So because you were uninformed, you decided to unilaterally subvert democracy. Not okay. Not okay. So we'll give them a chance. Go ahead and work on the bill's shortcomings. But... What you did was a cop-out, and your excuse is pathetic. We don't believe you. Now, when it comes to Maine, in November, they actually voted by referendum 
to institute a ranked choice voting system. Now, this is very important. It's maybe one of the first and most important steps to break up the two-party duopoly because this allows voters to rank their choices. So, for example, in 2016, if you supported Jill Stein, but you wanted to vote for her and make sure that Donald Trump didn't win, you could make Jill Stein your number one choice. And if she didn't get enough votes, then your vote would be uh, ranked and then transferred over to Hillary Clinton. So this would remove the spoiler effect, basically. However, this was ruled unconstitutional by a court in Maine, and now the fate of this new law is in jeopardy. And you would think that Republicans and Democrats would be in support of ranked choice voting because they constantly yell about how you can't vote third party, you can't vote libertarian or green because then you're going to be wasting your vote because, uh, you know, this will create the spoiler effect. You'll vote for your number one choice, but you are making it more likely that your last choice will be elected. So you can't do that. So you would think that by making sure that the spoiler effect goes away by instituting a ranked choice voting, they would be in support of that. But of course they're not, because if ranked choice voting is the law of the land in Maine, then they can no longer beat us over the heads and hold us hostage with the two parties. They can't say, fall in line and support Democrats or support Republicans. Otherwise, you know, the other team is going to win. They can't do that anymore. And they want that leverage over us. And this is why Democrats and Republicans don't support ranked choice voting, which is contradictory to what they tell us because people like Bill Maher, for example, they say, you know, you, you have to vote for Hillary Clinton. By voting for Jill Stein, you are effectively supporting Donald Trump. But when it comes time for us to make sure that that argument doesn't apply to us anymore when we have ranked choice voting so we can rank our choices and not have the spoiler effects, they tell us no, they shoot it down, they say it's unconstitutional, and if Maine really wants this, then the legislature of Maine is going to have to amend the Constitution. So this was supposed to be on the books in Maine by 2018. Now, that law is threatened. Now, BDN Maine explains, Maine's high court said Tuesday that the state's first-in-the-nation ranked-choice voting system is unconstitutional, throwing the voter-approved law into jeopardy ahead of the key 2018 campaign when it was supposed to be implemented. In a unanimous 44-page opinion issued Tuesday, the Maine Supreme Judicial Court's seven justices agreed with Attorney General Janet Mills, Secretary of State Matthew Dunlap, and Republican legislators that the system violates a provision of the Maine Constitution that allows elections to be won by pluralities and not necessarily majorities of votes. But Maine's history of plurality elections that covered the referendum approved by 52% of voters in 2016 and the non-binding opinion from the high court cast doubt that Maine will pioneer the change in its gubernatorial, congressional, and legislative elections. The legislature and Dunlap's office haven't moved to implement the law amid the uncertainty around its legality. Now, the legislature will be under pressure either to throw out the law or amend the Constitution to allow it. A majority of people in Maine voted for this. This doesn't have anything to do with civil rights. This is about voting and democracy. So to undermine the will of the people in Maine is inherently undemocratic. So these are two things, marijuana and ranked choice voting, that I look at as crucial. And we see the domino effect with weed because, you know, it took a couple of states, Colorado and Washington, to get the ball rolling. And Maine, I mean, they were a pioneer, and this could have started a domino effect where Maine started ranked choice, and then other states carried it out and implemented it. So this is incredibly disappointing to me uh, when I got this news. Let's hope that the legislators actually do the bidding of the people in Vermont, or excuse me, of Maine, well, and Vermont. And if they don't, vote their asses out of office.
Even though it's the case that progressives might be on the same page when it comes to policy substance, when it comes to strategy, I've seen considerable disagreement among the progressive community. So, case in point, if we're talking about, you know, reforming the Democratic Party and taking over the Democratic Party, people will often argue, you know, it's rotten to the core, you can't really do that, it's impossible, it's the party that's the problem. But if you talk about creating a third party, even if that party isn't necessarily politically viable or electorally viable, at least, you know, even if we're using it as leverage, people will counter with the argument that that's just not something that's feasible with our current electoral system. And if you want a third party or more political parties, you've got to get electoral reform. And I think that both arguments are absolutely persuasive. Both sides have points that are really important. And this is why I've been someone who believes in the kitchen sink approach, where you kind of take all the strategies, throw them at the wall, and see what sticks. So I don't want people to think that they're forced to choose one strategy over the other. I want you to know that you can support reforming and taking over the Democratic Party while simultaneously trying to build up a viable Green Party or Third Party or People's Party. Um, so what I decided to do to kind of gauge where progressives are at is I took to Patreon to poll my viewers uh, with the question going forward, which of the following strategies should we employ to get progressive policies codified into law? And 56% agree that we need a multifaceted approach. So in total, 21% think that we should try to reform or take over the Democratic Party with the likes of Justice Democrats and brand new Congress. 7% think we should build up the Green Party. 17% thinks we should start a new People's Party with the draft Bernie movement. And 56% think we should try to do all of those things at once. And once again, with this poll, um, I am in complete agreement. So getting to some of the comments, Jason King makes the point that the Democrats poll worse than Trump overall. Democrat is now a toxic brand and will hurt any chance of a progressive winning an election. Progressives need to team up with Nick Branagh and push for a progressive party. Dave Freed argues, we have to fight on every front. We can't leave any possibility of success out. Anyone saying that won't work is not helping. Until the strategy fails completely, we must pursue it. Christine says, I voted for all of the above because the American voter needs choice. For far too long, there has been a two-party system whereby the Republicans have been calling the shots and dragging the Democrats first towards the center, now further and further right. The political landscape has changed so much that I hardly recognize it from when I was a teenager. The Green Party needs to get their platform heard across the nation. The Democratic Party needs to be reformed. Bernie Sanders and others like him, Tulsi Gabbard springs to mind, need to do more in engaging the public and discussing everyone's concerns and how to resolve major issues. And finally, a new party needs to be introduced that is nothing if not progressive. And dare I say, aggressive. Justice Democrats is a good start. If people have more choice, more exposure to politics, more freedom to not only make that choice, but find the information to make an informed choice, I believe the American voter will show up in droves the next time an election takes place. Also, Super Tuesday has got to go. People work and go to school. They need to feel that they can go and vote, make their choice heard without fear of the process taking too long. I propose a Super Saturday. Yeah, so these are really excellent points. Um, I really can see it from all angles, but certainly I, I maintain the stance that we've got to try everything we can to make a difference, you know, because we, again, we all agree on the policy substance. It's just a matter of how we get those policies implemented into law. And for me, lately, I think that what you've all noticed is that I've kind of stopped 
trying to rely on politicians so much and I'm trying to take it into my own hands and our own hands more specifically by calling up people who are elected and demanding that they co-sponsor bills like HR 676 telling them to vote against the AHCA. I think that this is a strategy that we should also implement kind of the I don't know what you would even call it, you know, a take it in our own hands approach. So I think it's really important that we stay in tune with what progressives are thinking. So let me know in the comment section down below what you think and how you would have voted in, in this poll. Hey everyone, so I am here with Ben Frank. He is a millennial who's running for Congress to represent the 3rd District of Utah, and he's competing in a special election to take over Jason Chaffet's seat. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Ben. Can you tell me why you decided to run for Congress? Uh, yes, because um, in Utah and in general, um, our elections have been kind of vacuous. Um, like a lot of candidates don't even put up platforms, let alone have issues that they're going to fight for. And so I think that right now is the time that progressives can really um, win and make a big difference. Perfect. Now, before we even get started with the interview, I think the biggest question that my viewers have is, if you were elected on day one, would you co-sponsor HR 676? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm 100% for a single payer and um, I'll be fighting for it every day if I'm elected. That is... Very encouraging. That's, I think, one of the biggest issues for progressives and for people who are out there fighting in the grassroots to hear, you know, corporate politicians say that they won't support this right now or they can't support it. It's discouraging. So it's nice to see a new generation of millennials and grassroots progressives just running to do what our cowardice, you know, representatives uh, won't do. So thank you for doing that. So first of all, um, can you tell me a little bit about your platform? So clearly you are a progressive. I would probably describe you as a Bernie crowd. I don't know if that's how you self-identify. But tell me what issues are the most important to you and what you would fight for if you were elected. So number one issue is campaign finance reform because that's the foundation that if we want single payer, if we want uh, clean energy, things like that, uh, we need to get the corporate money out of politics. And so what we need to do, because we have multiple Supreme Court cases uh, to overturn, is we need a uh, constitutional uh, amendment, uh, 28th Amendment, to declare that corporations are not people and that they cannot give to campaigns. And then uh, other issues, um, a lot of times well, federal uh, candidates for Congress don't talk about foreign policy, and that's a major concern that... For so long, uh, we've been outside of the international norms and international law, and so we need to do things like stop the drone program, uh, stop funding like Saudi Arabia in, to commit atrocities in Yemen, um, just a sane and normal and legal foreign policy. Um, I also am all about uh, getting a new Glass-Steagall and tuition-free colleges. Well, that all sounds absolutely great. So um, one thing that I wanted to ask you is because since campaign finance reform is such a huge uh, plank of your platform, how is it that you're running for Congress? Because a lot of corporate Democrats will make the argument that, well, you know, they agree with you. However, you know, you can't show up to a gunfight bringing a knife. So how do you run for Congress? What are you doing to raise money um, if you're against, you know, super PACs and this huge infusion of dark money into politics? Well, I am refusing uh, all corporate money, but I'm just relying on small donations from a lot of people that uh, have actually sort of given up on the political system. But um, having a candidate with integrity, um, I'm able to raise money that way. Um, I feel like 
Oh, there's a, this big apathy problem, and a big reason is because most people, if they're informed or not, they know that the politicians aren't working for them; they're working for corporations. And so, you know, corporate Democrats make all kinds of excuses for why we can't have single payer, why we need to take corporate money. But the reality of the situation is, is there's a difference between fundraising and votes. And um, I think that if you have a strong message, that people will come out and support you. Right, and you certainly do. And it seems like you are on the same side of the issues as a lot of progressives that I see, like Stephen Jaffe, like other progressives that are running and challenging corporate Democrats. So can you tell me, what do you think is one of the main problems with corporate Democrats? I mean, you kind of alluded to this by talking about money and politics, but what do you think is one of the biggest issues that kind of catalyzed your campaign in terms of why you don't feel adequately represented? Uh, Because, well, in my state in particular, we're a very uh, conservative state, and so there's this flawed thinking uh, in our elections that in order for a Democrat to win, they need to be like a light version of a Republican, which when I go down to the mining towns, to the farming towns, um, over and over again, people you wouldn't expect to be progressive, they say, we would support Democrats if they cared about the working class. We would support Democrats if they were true Democrats. And I think that um, a lot of politicians are too concerned about their careers and getting elected. And so they run very weak campaigns and uh, they try to appease donors. And uh, And there's this big mythology in the Democratic Party in general that the swing voter, voters are center-right. They're going to get the so-called moderate Republicans when really, if you talk to the independents, a lot of them that don't vote, the reason they don't vote is because our political spectrum is way too far to the right. You know, Bernie Sanders anywhere else in the world would be a mainstream, almost moderate, but in the United States, he's fringe left. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that you bring up something that's really important because what you're doing is you're actually giving people in Utah an option because, like you said, it's often, you know, if you look at a specific state or, you know, a district, uh, the implication is that, well, they're a red district, so you, you can't even give them a progressive option. But what you're doing is you're coming in with actual progressive left-wing policies, and you're giving them an option, which is really, I think, unprecedented. And I kind of feel like this is a new phenomenon that we only started to see with Bernie Sanders' campaign, with actual progressives coming in, no matter you know what state you're in, and saying, no, I support single-payer, I support getting out of these foreign policy blunders that we've been in for years, since you and I, you know, we weren't even old enough to vote, you know, since our leaders got us into these wars. Um, So I think that it's really important that you bring that up. Now, I wanted to talk about your challengers because you do have a challenger. The favorite currently um, is basically a corporate Democrat who has a lot of momentum. So can you tell me about her as well as your other challenger? Yeah, so uh, uh, Dr. Kathy Allen, you know, I'm not going to say anything negatively about her personally, but from a policy point of view, it's almost difficult to run against her because I don't know where she stands because he's so vague, um, hasn't said anything about foreign policy. And a big uh, contention between us is the issue of single payer. She'll dip her foot in kind of flirting with it, but then uh, come back to uh, being concerned about insurance companies. Um, And then Carl Ingwell, my other opponent, you know, I think that He's strong on things like public lands, but he won't come out strongly for like campaign finance reform. And so it's a limited uh, platform. Okay, yeah. So basically, I think you're describing the typical corporate Democrat who they won't necessarily, not necessarily for your other, but for um, Kathy, um, you know, they they won't endorse single payer 
healthcare. They'll say, mm, maybe I support it. And you know, one thing that I've started to see is that uh, a lot of corporate Democrats will say they support single payer, but they won't actually do anything to push us further. I mean, most people don't know that Nancy Pelosi technically states she supports single payer, but right. she won't co sponsor HR 676, and she doesn't think the party should be moving for that right now. So I think that to have someone like you who comes out and says, yes, I will co-sponsor this when I'm elected. That's really important right now because you have people, you know, in the grassroots that I speak with that are fighting every single day and they're just being ignored. You know, they say, please, you know, to their representatives, co-sponsor HR 676 and it's not happening. So to see someone that's actually responsive like you, that actually gives me some um, some hope, <laughs> even in the state like Utah, uh, you know, where it seems like all that the Democratic Party is willing to even try is corporate Democrats. And, you know, your your opponent right now has a lot of mainstream support as well. You told me that uh, Rosie O'Donnell even endorsed her and gave her how much money? I think she maxed out the twenty seven hundred. I'm not uh, sure about that, but I'm kind of certain. Lots of money. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so uh, yeah, that that to me is um, yeah, it's telling because if you if you have the platitudes and the cliches, then for some reason you garner mainstream support because you know you're not you're not going to challenge the status quo. But someone like you, you will challenge the status quo because you're coming in there and you're posing an existential threat to health insurance companies, and you know that's to benefit the American people. So I think that that's great. So can you uh, tell us where we can find out more information about you? Uh, yes, my website is uh, Ben and is number four uh, Congress dot org, and um, we have uh, options to donate there, and that would be very helpful because, like I said, we're not taking corporate money and we're facing a well-funded challenger. Um, and my platform's on there, and I'm also have a YouTube channel where I have a couple homemade videos, and um, Ben number four Congress on Twitter. Okay, perfect. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say before we close up? Uh, no, I think that's great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, good luck. I hope you win. You have my full endorsement. Um, I think that you are making a difference here. Um, so thank you for that. Wonderful. Thank you. I am here with Stephen Jaffe. He is running to represent the 12th District of California. And he's not just like any other congressional candidate's campaign because his campaign is especially significant to progressives because he is challenging someone who needed to be challenged a really long time ago. So, Stephen, can you tell us who you're challenging and why you decided to challenge this individual? Uh, I am challenging Nancy Pelosi in the primary next year. And the reason I decided, well, there's multiple reasons for that. Um, First, I'll tell you why I'm running for any office. Uh, I was very much inspired by Bernie Sanders in 2016. Um, I'm not a youngster, and I actually remember every presidential election since I was a young kid. The first Eisenhower-Stevenson election is the one I remember. I remember coming home and telling my parents because his campaign slogan was, I like Ike. And they were Democrats, and they said, no, you don't. And I didn't know, I don't know what they were talking about. But um, the reason I bring this history back is Bernie was the first presidential candidate who really resonated with me, that I really felt connected with and very inspired by. So um, after working on several local campaigns, I went to work for Bernie. 
and um, eventually I was recruited by the national campaign. Uh, I traveled from uh, San Francisco to Nevada to help legally supervise the uh, Nevada caucuses, which uh, turned out were absolutely chaotic, but kind of a microcosm of what happened around the country during the primary process. So we all woke up on November 9th in a collective state of shock, I think, over what had happened. And um, I had listened to what Bernie and other people had said about don't just talk, get out there and do something. So um, I threw my hat in the ring. My opponent is Nancy Pelosi. Um, Nancy Pelosi is, I think, as much as anybody else except maybe Hillary Clinton and maybe even more so now, uh, the icon of what I call the, establish, the establishment corporate Democratic Party. And uh, in my opinion, she is um, significantly out of touch with her own constituents here in San Francisco. She uh, herself and is, and is perceived as a national political figure. She's the minority leader of the House. She was this, the Speaker of the House. And I think she's forgotten she represents. And um, it doesn't appear to me she shares the values of her constituents, of which I am one, and um, how they view the world politically uh, in 2017 and, uh, and probably will in 2018. So I think she's vulnerable in that respect. And that's a long answer to your short question. And that's that's fantastic because I think that learning the inspiration as to why someone decides to run is really important because you were motivated by Bernie Sanders' campaign and clearly you're inspired by Bernie Sanders. And I think that to have someone with the ideals of Bernie Sanders challenge Nancy Pelosi is really important. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about is kind of a two-pronged a two question here. First of all, you're kind of running on the campaign of um, four four issues. One of them is single-payer health care. So I'm sure you know about the bill HR 676, which is basically the bill that would take Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all issue and uh, bring it to a national stage. It would, it would give us a single-payer system. So you support single-payer, but Nancy Pelosi also states that she supports single-payer as well, but yet she won't co-sponsor HR 676. And she stated recently that she doesn't even believe that Democrats should start pushing for that issue. So for, for my question, I want to know, would you actually co-sponsor HR 676? And why is it that uh, you think Nancy Pelosi refuses to get on board in spite having the rhetorics, you know, that's seemingly in support of a uh, single payer? Uh, I don't believe Nancy Pelosi supports single payer. There's multiple reasons for that. The main reason is that even though she is uh, a renowned fundraiser, the source of her fundraising is guess who? Healthcare, care, healthcare industry, insurance companies, people who have a significant stake in not having single-payer insurance come into existence. Um, and she does not support single-payer. One of the things I say in my campaign and in my interviews is the two rarest words you hear politicians speak are the words yes and no. And when she is asked, do you support single-payer, if you can ask me that question and I'll give you a one word answer, yes. If you ask her that question, you get a five minute long-winded evasive and obfuscates, I can't say the word, but you know. <laughs> it's a hard obfuscate. <laughs> yes. She, um, 
and she doesn't answer the question. Uh, the last time I heard her speak about it was a couple of days ago, and she's using evasive and hedge words like uh, single payer option. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Option to what? What's the other option? Um, she will not unequivocally commit to single payer because she doesn't believe in it. She doesn't want it, and that's why she won't sponsor it. She will lose her funding from these for-profit insurance companies and healthcare companies. Right. And I think that you're kind of speaking to a bigger issue um, that uh, has to do with campaign finance. But be before we move on to campaign finance, um, so just so that way viewers are clear, you would co-sponsor HR 676 if you were elected? Uh, if you, I don't know the numbers. That's uh, John Conyers' bill, I think it is. Correct. John Conyers' yes, bill. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah, excellent. Yes, my my one-word answer is either take your pick, yes or absolutely. <laughs> That's perfect. Okay, so yeah, um, you talked about, you know, why Nancy Pelosi won't get on board and the need for campaign finance reform. And this is one of the signature issues of your campaign. So can you talk about why campaign finance reform is so necessary right now? Because I think this is a really confusing issue. So can you describe why you see it as one of the most important issues of our time? Well, uh, at the risk of getting too lawyerly about this, this, this issue really flows from the horrible Citizens United case during which uh, the Supreme Court um, in a uh, unwise and very bad uh, move made it, uh, equated a corporation with a human person and said if a human person can give money to um, campaigns, so can a corporation. Of course, the corporation being a person is a fiction. The idea of a corporation itself is a fiction. It's legally created. It's not a living human being. So now you have corporations with essentially unlimited funds funneling their money through PACs and other uh, organizations, in some cases laundering their money so it's impossible to tell from where it comes, and then giving it to candidates who support their point of view. Um, that makes it possible for people like the Koch brothers and others to essentially buy votes. Um, there are some races where the spending by one side is, you know, 20 orders of magnitude bigger than the other because of these, these, these floods of money that come in that way. Um, I believe eventually for campaigns to be fair, there's going to be half, there's going to have to be some kind of public funding of, of the campaigns so that everyone is playing on a level playing field because right now it's fixed. Um, if I'm elected to Congress, I will look into how federal legislation can fix this. Uh, it, very, it very well may be that there has to be movement on the Supreme Court, but sometimes Congress can make legislation which uh, alters or, or softens the impact of some uh, Supreme Court decisions. I, I know that to be true. Um, I, call that, I call this practice dark money. When, when the source of the money is being hidden. That's called dark money. And if I can um, indulge, if you can indulge me for about another 60 seconds, here in San Francisco, I want, I want San Francisco voters to know, I'm very proud, last October, our little tiny Democratic club here on the South Beach District 6 Democratic Club, uh, I wrote a resolution that was passed by our club um, requiring 
uh, chartered democratic clubs to reveal the sources of their income and their money. Um, that's because one of these clubs here in San Francisco uh, had taken in almost a million dollars of dark money and distributed out to uh, what are called, uh, they call themselves moderate Democrats. They are really uh, Republican light um, builders, developers, banks and like that. So that resolution was to target all clubs and make them show where they're getting their money and how they spend it. Well, then another club, I went to another club, gave a speech and they adopted it. Then the San Francisco Democratic County Central Committee, which is the Democratic Party of the entire city, um, adopted a similar bill requiring all the clubs <clears throat> to do it and itself to follow that. So this has been escalating here and um, there is now pending in the California legislature, a bill AB 14 statewide reporting of dark money. So it's a really growing movement here, uh, which uh, I hope I had a little bit to do with incubating it way last October in our little club resolution. So uh, that is a central plank of my campaign, getting rid of dark money and uh, finding a way that all candidates um, compete for public offices on a level playing field. And you're not just talking the talk, you're actually walking the walk because what I've noticed is that there's a certain number of corporate Democrats that have co-opted the language that progressive use about wanting campaign finance reform. However, they still continue to take PAC money and corporate money because they say you can't show up to a gunfight with a knife, but you're actually doing something that shows that you, you don't have to run a campaign and take PAC money. So can you explain how you're actually getting your money for your campaign? Um, well, I am um, incredibly gratified. You know, I'm a novice politician. This is the first time I've ever run for office. And uh, it's still, I'm still not used to having people who've never met me send me money. Um, we are um, well over 800 individual contributors now in a little over a month. I think we've been just doing it about a month. Um, and um, the, the contributions are coming from all over the United States. More than half of my contributions are, are out of state. And I mean all over the United States. Um, and that sends two messages to me. Um, one is that people agree with what I'm saying on the issues that I'm talking about. But as much as I would like to say, everyone is sending me this money because I'm such a good looking, wonderful fellow. The truth is it has not much to do with me this early on um, because I'm a stranger, they don't know me. Um, the contributions I'm getting are from people who wanna unseat Nancy Pelosi. And when they see that I seem to agree with their point of view, at least superficially, they said, that's what I think, they send money. As time goes by and I get to be better known, I hope that they do do it on account of me more so. But it's been very gratifying. Um, how are we doing it? We have a website, um, Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E, for Congress with the number four.com. We have a Facebook page, Jaffe for Congress, also with the number four. I have a Twitter account, and I'm not sure what else I have. I'm not... You, you're reaching the end of my universe of technology here. But um, that, that's essentially how we are doing it. Um, we don't have TV ads, uh, not putting on big events yet. So um, it's been a, a real genuine grassroots 
kind of effort um, in terms of fundraising. And if anybody is interested, just go to jaffeforcongress.com or Jaffe for Congress on Facebook. Right. And, you know, I think that the reason why you're getting so much support nationwide is because it's not just that you're challenging Nancy Pelosi, but unlike a lot of corporate Democrats, at least for myself, and I know I speak for a lot more progressives, as we learn more about you, we tend to like you more. So one thing that I found out about you um, from a tweet that you posted is that you not only support a $15 minimum wage, but you've stated the harsh truth that not many people are willing to acknowledge is that in certain areas of the country, $15 isn't enough. I mean, the living, the standard of living is super high. So you've talked about, you know, pinning it to inflation in certain ways and making sure that in certain areas they have a living wage, regardless if that's 15 or higher than 15. So I, I think that you are really a candidate that inspires progressives and you're the real deal. Um, so let me ask you this, because I know that for a lot of people right now, if they can't donate money, then what else can they do? Is there any option that we could potentially phone bank for you or knock on doors for you if we're outside of the state? I mean, how can we make a difference and support your campaign? Well, when people tell me, I'm sorry, I really love what you like, but I'm unemployed right now. We're really struggling. I can't send you money. What I tell them to do, I tell them to do two things. One, I say, send me $1. Send me a $1 contribution. Make your statement. Show yourself as a donor. I really don't care. That $1 means more to me than $500 from somebody who, who's making a lot of money. Um, just sticking your name out there like that. I also say write me an email or put it on, on the website that you would like to volunteer. I have people who will read that and watch that, and um, you can expect to be contacted if you'd like to do that. So that, that's, that's my answer to that question. Well, that's fantastic. Look, I won't take up too much more of your time, but is there anything else that you'd like to say? Any last you know, pitch that you'd like to say to uh, my viewers? Um, well, I, I want your viewers to listen to what I say mostly. Um, there's a lot of um, political rhetoric that goes around where people really don't pay attention to what the politician's saying. And uh, I think the issues that I'm addressing are very important. They're important nationally and they're important here in San Francisco. And nationally, I think the election is important um, because of whom I'm opposing. I'm opposing the, the person who is the most representative, I think, of the corporate establishment in the Democratic Party and the, uh, the person uh, who I hold partially responsible for the fiasco of 2016. Um, I guess the last thought that I'll close with, it bothered me when the DNC emails came out and it was shown beyond any reasonable argument that Bernie had been essentially cheated out of the nomination. And um, Hillary was obviously the beneficiary of that kind of action, but it bothered me that other people in the Democratic Party never stepped up and said, you know, you're right, we shouldn't have done it. Um, we need to fix this problem. And they didn't, and they're not, and they have never expressed any guilt, remorse. In fact, they argue now, they're lawyers in a case in Florida, as you know, they argue we have the right to do that. We have the legal right to lie, cheat, and steal Bernie out of the nomination. And I find that morally despicable. So um, I guess Absolutely. that's how I'd like to end. Well, and um, I'll kind of add this. I, I 
I was looking at your platform and you actually include DNC reform as part of your platform. So I noticed that you want to abolish superdelegates and your, your platform doesn't just appeal to, you know, progressives in terms of what we're really fighting for. I mean, the three biggest issues right now are Medicare for all, um, you know, fight for 15. You're talking about, you know, an all encompassing platform that takes into account progressives from across the country. I mean, criminal justice reform. So you really, I would encourage everyone um, of my viewers to look at his platform because it's just comprehensive and it's it's fantastic. It's it's as progressive as you can possibly get. So Stephen, thank you so much um, for coming on the show. One more time, can you tell us where to find you? Yes, it's Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E, the number four and the word congress.com or Jaffe for Congress spelled the same way on Facebook. Those would be the two best ways. All right, and uh, when is the primary taking place in California? Uh, you know, in about a little over 13 months, believe it or not. Okay. Okay. I'm so sorry. Have... I'm sorry. It, it's already May. A little over 12 months. 12 months. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a long way to go, but because I'm so unknown and she is so well known, uh, we thought it was wise for me to jump in now and try to get people acquainted with who I am. Right. This is a true underdog story. This is a David versus Goliath situation. Um, so I think that that was a smart move. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed talking with you. Well, that does it for this episode. I want to thank you all for tuning in if you've made it this far. And I want to send a special thank you to the Patreon patrons, the PayPal contributors, and anyone who submitted a one-time donation via PayPal through the humanistreport.com website. You guys are absolutely amazing, and your support is crucial. So thank you all so much. Uh, we'll see you next week. Take care.